1: Tonight on The Readout.
2: I think if we had a, a policy which was firm, which armed Ukraine with defensive and offensive weapons so that they could defend themselves, I think Putin would make different calculations. And so I think Obama's policy of weakness is actually making a larger conflict more likely.
1: Huh, that was less than eight years ago. But now DeSantis wants to appease Putin, calling the brutal invasion of Ukraine nothing more than a territorial dispute. It's the latest sign that the party of DeSantis, Trump and Tucker, is seriously out of touch with the views of most Americans. Also tonight, how the failure of Silicon Valley Bank is exposing the myths of deregulation and the hypocrisy of libertarians, who all of a sudden seem real pro-government when it comes to federal assistance for them. And Donald Trump rolls out the Melania defense with his lawyer claiming the payment made to the porn actress, whom he was allegedly cheating with were made to protect Melania, not to help him get elected president. But we begin the readout tonight with happy Pi Day to you all. To those not in the know, it is the celebration of a mathematical constant, not the dessert. And here's another constant. It's also National Equal Pay Day and women are still making less than men. Speaking of men who have an overinflated sense of self, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has finally shared with the world or the roughly three million Americans who watch Tucker Carlson, what his policy position is on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You see, Tucker, who just happens to be the favorite American anchor of Russian propagandists, asked a number of potential 2024 presidential contenders for their thoughts on the invasion and what they would do if they were president. Among Tucker's questions, should the United States support regime change in Russia, which isn't what the United States is actually doing, but Tucker never lets the truth get in the way. DeSantis responded by saying that the U.S. has many vital national interests. Becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. He also warned that escalated U.S. involvement in the Russia Ukraine war would risk explicitly drawing the United States into the conflict, which actually isn't true. And it's also interesting. Because back when Ron DeSantis was a mostly unremarkable Tea Party House Republican from Florida, he called on President Obama to get more aggressive against Putin. It's not surprising that he has changed his tune. He has larger ambitions now, and he's shown to be particularly adept at bogarting Trump and Tucker's talking points with his own uncharismatic panache. And here's the thing about those three men, DeSantis, Trump, and Tucker— When they see an opportunity to capitalize on whatever will trigger the right wing id, they'll take it. Meanwhile, the people you might call the old school Republicans like Mike Pence, Chris Christie and even South Carolina Senator Tim Scott all responded to Tucker's questionnaire calling for a more robust defense of Ukraine. Senator Mitch McConnell, who really hates being called Moscow Mitch because he blocked two measures aimed at preventing foreign interference in U.S. elections, has been steadfast in his support for Ukraine. Just a few weeks ago, he told the country and the MAGA wing of his party to wake up to the threat of Russia. Today, he got support from Senator and Trump caddy Lindsey Graham, who pointed out that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a big deal and noted that the last time someone in Europe claimed the land of others and tried to take it by force of arms was Adolf Hitler's attempt to build a third Reich. He also pointed out that Russia's claim to Taiwan is also based on the proposition of a territorial dispute. It's just so hard to keep track of Lindsay's beliefs, y'all. Sorry. Also, as if they need a reminder of what kind of actor Russia really is. Earlier today, Russian jets harassed and then collided with a U.S. Reaper drone over the Black Sea. While Senators McConnell and Graham are fighting the good fight for Ukraine, the rest of their party has moved on. And they didn't do much to stop Donald Trump, who wants to leave the NATO alliance still if he's elected president again. Just look at House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He has declined an invitation to visit Ukraine because folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates don't care for it. At this point, folks like Greene and Tucker have more sway over the principles of the Republican Party than Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell or even right-wing icons like Ronald Reagan. And they are letting the base's freak flags fly while they are dead set on peddling their brand of hate TV on Fox. The rest of the country has very different priorities, however. Take, for example, abortion. Republican lawmakers in South Carolina are considering a change to the state's criminal code that would make a person who gets an abortion eligible for the death penalty. Of course, the vast majority of Americans don't agree with the Republican Party on that. On guns, Republicans want to strip away protections that would make gun ownership safer. So when President Biden said this about gun legislation during an event announcing a new executive order to increase background checks, the majority of Americans agree. Let's finish the job. Ban assault weapons. Ban them again. Do it now. Enough. Do something. Do something big. And look at the push to censor books. Again, the majority of Americans support the opposite. Woke is a great word that triggers the MAGA mob, but it isn't what keeps most Americans up at night. Someone should probably tell Governor DeSantis, who has made turning the rest of America into Florida his priority or forcing us all to live through one long, unbearable episode of The Tucker Carlson Show, live from the White House for the next four years. Joining me now is Jelani Cobb, dean of the Columbia Journalism School and staff writer at The New Yorker, and Matthew Dowd, political strategist and MSNBC political analyst. You know, Matthew, I do want to go to you because for a time you were a Republican. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember that Republicans had a pretty hard line against Russia at one point. Uh, they were the hawkish party. They were the party that said we have to take a firm stand against things like the axis of evil when it came to places like Iraq and uh, North Korea. Trump, Fundamentally obviously changed that. He aligned the party with North Korea. He was friends with friendly with Kim Jong-un. He's aligned the party with Trump. And you've seen this change in Ron DeSantis, who was going after President Obama, in his mind for not being tough enough on Putin when it came to territorial ambitions. But then he changed. He ran for president. And he got money from the same people who were giving Trump money. Just this, this is this piece from South Florida Sun Sentinel. Ron DeSantis had to return a political contribution. That he received from two Soviet born businessmen, Levin Igor, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who are accused of funneling foreign cash into US elections to increase their influence and promote their business assets. We know um, that there was a guy named Jesse Benton who was scared who was uh got eighteen months in prison for funneling Russian money into Republican campaigns. Russians were all involved with the NRA. I could go on. But it looks like Ron DeSantis has decided to join their club. Your thoughts? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. It's not long ago that Republicans celebrated Ronald Reagan standing up to standing up to the Soviet Union who cut and they constantly claimed by him being hard on the Soviet Union allowed or forced the Soviet Union to collapse that they've gone off the deep end. I was thinking about your introduction about Pi Day and the reason why this day was chosen. Obviously, it's three one four, but it's also Einstein's birthday. Right. Today is mm-hmm. Einstein's birthday. And I, as I watched DeSantis and other and the Republicans who want to replace Donald Trump and get past Donald Trump, I'll paraphrase Einstein. And Einstein would have said, it, you can't solve the problem of Donald Trump by using the same thinking that created Donald Trump, right? And what they're doing is, is they want to solve the problem do- of Donald yeah. Trump in their party by being like Donald Trump right. in their party, which to me, is an amazing lack of strategy role in this. But they, what it really demonstrates, and this is why I think, as you have done in show after show, lift up the proponents of democracy, because what we have today is a Republican Party who who sides now more with autocracies than they do with democracy especially domestically in our country, in this place. And the more we can lift up those sort of people that are defending democracy. And as you laid out in so many different issues today, we have lots of reforms that we need to do in this country, Uh, lots of reforms, not to make it less democratic, but to actually make it democratic because we have a democracy today that in many ways doesn't, doesn't cede to the will of the voters. And that's why I think to me, the more we can push back, obviously, against people like DeSantis and autocracy, but also simultaneously point out that, yeah, we do need, there is a problem in this country, not the problem the Republicans like to say, but the problem is, is that the will of the people are not getting heard.
1: Yeah. I mean, and to that, and this is a journalistic challenge. I'm so glad that you were, if you were here today with us, Jelani, because I hear In this business, people talking about DeSantis in this very dry way that says he's different from—that he is a turn from Trump and that Republican voters want Trump policies without the Trump drama— um, they never specify which policies they mean, because Trump's policies were a massive tax cut for the rich. But other than that, it was attacking LGBTQ people, saying they shouldn't serve in the military. It was attacking Muslims. It was a, it was it was racism. You know, the policies that seemed to get the right going were policies that were hate based policies. And that's what seemed to make the right happy because they were he hated the right people, quote unquote. And when it comes to DeSantis, this sort of—this is his policy. I don't know anything—I haven't heard anything about dealing with the insurance crisis or his his, Russia—his views on on Russia and Ukraine seem to be just like Trump's. His his ideas are to go after uh, uh, trans people, go after drag shows, stop the teaching of African-American history with any truth in it, promote this sort of Western essentialism in education— promoting a now they're going to have a 6 uh, week ban on abortion you know the pa- the policies seem awfully fascist just like Trump he's just a meaner little version so i don't yeah. understand how journalism is not able to wrap its mind around that
3: Well, you know, the interesting thing, you know, when we talk historically, you know, we had this phenomenon uh, called McCarthyism in this country. Uh, And it it was called McCarthyism uh, because of the behavior of Joseph McCarthy. But if you look actually at that time frame, that time period, McCarthy was only guilty of seeing where the crowd was heading and running out to the front of it. Uh, that the the phenomenon that we knew of as McCarthyism preceded Joe McCarthy and it succeeded him. It continued after he was Mm -hmm. censured by the Senate. Uh, And so the same thing is the the case with Trump and Trumpism, that the dynamics that we've placed his name on existed prior to his ascent, you know, prior to him coming down that escalator in 2015. And, you know, he has put an imprint on those things of branding, which is what his talent really was, Uh, And so he's branded those things after himself. But the dynamics that created it that allowed him to have that much success continue. And, you know, the best example of that is that when we look at uh, the policies and the positions that Ron DeSantis has taken up and the way that they appear to be so very Trump-like, he is responding to the same sort of pressure created by a right-wing media system uh, in which Uh, any person who deviates from the standard orthodoxy can face a a challenge, a primary challenge. Uh, And when you talk with political scientists, they'll tell you that the primary system here is one of the reasons why the party has moved so far in the authoritarian direction. People have leveraged it in that way. What we haven't done as journalists is outline the connections between these things to understand how we are seeing uh, really kind of marginal and extreme viewpoints being mainlined into American politics via this particular mechanism. And that's why these things appear the way that they appear right now.
1: And the thing is, Matthew, absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Because the the things that we're seeing are anti-majoritarian. Normally Mm -hmm. in politics, right, the idea is to get more people to support and vote for you. But if you go through these, the the way that these things poll, opposing efforts to ban books, 76% of Americans oppose that. Abortion should be legal. 64%, that's two-thirds, saying transgender people should be protected from discrimination. Two-thirds of Americans believe that. Uh, On gun laws, they should be more strict. 60% nearly, 58%. Now, they've definitely managed to, 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 harm trans people in terms of getting care, but it's still 47%, which is a, a decent plurality. And, and yet, so, so I, to me, Ron DeSantis is not so much a governor. He just is the Tucker Carlson show that lives in the governor's mansion. He's doing the Tucker Carlson show every day, not governing. And, and that mm-hmm. seems to be his belief that that's how you become president. Just do Tucker's show. Be Tucker. Well,
0: the, the, the problem, he's, he's Tucker Carlson's show with actual power, which which he can do by executive order or he can convince his Republican legislature, which doesn't seem to have any guardrails on him, which is I my firm belief is that that Ron DeSantis is far more dangerous than Donald Trump, far sure. more dangerous than Donald Trump. He's smarter, which is not a huge which is not a huge <laughs> hurdle. He's smarter than Donald Trump. He's far more strategic. And he far he far less responds to being shamed to being like okay that's not popular. And Donald Trump at times would pull back and say, well that's not what I meant. Ron DeSantis won't do any of that. He's not any of it. And I want to take take up something, Jelani. I hope I pronounced your name right. Jelani is that Jelani. Jelani? It's take up something he said, which is this. I have faulted the concentration on Donald Trump, the person by both folks of us, all of us who think he's been a danger and destructive to our democracy, as well as the sort of never Trumpers, singularly using him, neglected to solve the real problem. And the real problem, it's like a field that has poison in it, right? There's poison in this field of the soil. And this corn stalk pops up and everybody screams, don't eat the corn stalk, don't eat the corn, it's poison. And we never dealt with the field. The field of poison and the American soil, soil of our democracy is tainted in poison and has been for a long period of time. And what by concentrating solely on Donald Trump, we think oh, we'll cut down the stock and everything will be fine. We need to be neglected to lay out the path forward of how do we really have a representative, majoritarian, multicultural democracy? Because if we don't deal with that, the Donald Trumps and Ron DeSantis and Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene will continue to grow out of the soil that is still poisoned.
1: I mean, because the cornstalk is fascism, which and I wish we had more time because it's the other word, just like racism used to be, that the media will not say. And, you know, The New York Times had this real challenge in the 1930s that they watched what happened in Germany happen and tried to remark on it as, as if it was normal politics. It's not. Fascism is not normal politics, but it's here, y'all, and it's growing. And just because it ain't Trump performing it, and the guy's name is DeSantis, and he's like four inches shorter, or six inches shorter, or whatever, it's still fascism. Uh, Jelani Cobb, Matthew Dowd, I wish we had more time. Thank you. Next on the readout. Isn't it weird how <laughs> Silicon Valley libertarians wanted government to stay out of people's lives right up until the time that they needed a bailout?
4: The readout continues after this. and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future. That's plannedparenthood.org slash future.
1: NBC News has learned that both the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission have opened investigations into last week's collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. It comes as the Treasury Department is using emergency measures to give all depositors access to their full funds at no cost to the taxpayer, though the Biden administration maintains it is not a bailout. But what should not be lost among the news of this collapse is the speed at which these tech startups and venture capitalists, the quintessential free market libertarians, who invest in SVB, invested in SVB, went from being fervently against government handouts to basically begging for one. It was almost immediate. As current affairs columnist Nathan Robinson puts it, every libertarian becomes a socialist the moment the free market screws them. Writing, billionaire Mark Cuban swiftly went from denouncing regulators to asking, where were the regulators? Tech industry leaders immediately started calling for the FDIC to ditch its $250,000 cap on guaranteed deposits. Venture capitalist David Sachs said it was unfair for depositors to be punished for opening a bank account at an institution that failed. And Clinton Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, notorious for his free market attitudes, who has previously had harsh words for those advocating debt relief for student loan borrowers, said that when it comes to Silicon Valley Bank, the government should step in. And that, quote, this is not the time for moral hazard lectures or for lesson administering on, for alarm about the political consequences of bailouts. Funny how quickly they switch it up when they are the ones on the losing end of wondrous capitalism. But let's be clear, this collapse is not about the bank being woke or too focused on diversity, as some on the right are pretending to believe, so that they can keep the wingers entertained. It's about investors as members of the free market making a bad bet. If you want to gamble, you're going to have to accept the risk. And now here they are waiting to be rescued by the evil federal government. Help me. Help me, Biden. Help me. Join me now is David Gura, business correspondent for NPR. Uh, David, it is great to see you again. It's been too long, my friend. Great to see my, my you My former well. veteran of the weekend, uh, the weekend shift. Um, so let, let's talk about this because... Let me just read you this. The Atlantic wrote this piece, and this is about Silicon Valley losing its luster. They said Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, proposed to investors just— Start sending out money, no questions asked. Today is a good day to offer emergency cash to your startups that need it for payroll or whatever. No docs, no terms, just send money, reads a tweet from Midday Friday. Here was the head of the industry's hottest company, rumored to have a $29 billion valuation, soberly proposing handouts as a way of preventing further contagion. Silicon Valley's overlords were once so certain of their superiority and independence that some actually rallied behind a proposal to secede from the (laughs) the continental United States. Is the message now that we're all in this together? What happened to these libertarians, David?
5: you're right that the tune has changed among these plutocrats who talk an awful lot about secession, as you say, or cryogenic freezing. Uh, This is a breed of executives who've made a lot of money. And there's, as you know, as a student of history, Joy, there's a long history in this country uh, of people who become rich. Either they earn a lot of money or acquire a lot of money, as is often the case. And they think that that imbues them with the ability to opine on matters of public policy and to become authorities on public policy. And you've seen that here. You mentioned David Sachs, uh, Bill Ackman, the billionaire hedge fund manager, also weighing in on this over the weekend uh, calling for these bailouts, and it's a pretty extraordinary thing. I mean, one of the things that we're tracking now as we kind of do this post-mortem and look at what happened here is how this rush, this bank run, was catalyzed and egged on by a number of these investors who had this new platform of social media, of Twitter and Reddit, and were effectively encouraging their contemporaries, these other wealthy VCs, uh, other billionaires and millionaires, to uh, withdraw their money from this bank and encourage the the companies with whom they worked to withdraw their money uh, as well. I have a lot of friends in California. I love the state. It is in many ways (laughs) a dysfunctionally governed and managed state. And I think that's what this is kind of highlighting here. You have a lot of people who uh, have opinions on how public policy should work and how governance should work in that state and broadly. And we're seeing that come to bear in the context of of this, the, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank.
1: And I think it's it's easy to feel real, really sorry for the depositors, obviously, and the FDIC is going to cover them and for the small businesses who went to this bank for capitalization. But there's so many ironies here. You know, these kind of banks, they rarely capitalize minority and women-owned businesses, right? They're capitalizing a, a lot of businesses who kind of look like them, right? So, so there's no wokeness involved in this kind of capitalism. They're trying to make money, right? So you've got that issue. Then you've got this just real moral hazard talk when it comes to giving people who borrowed for student loans a break. And you've got the Supreme Court potentially poised to overthrow, overthrow that because they just don't like the policy. But when it comes to the airlines, the VCs, the big bankers, the Peter Thiel types, you don't hear any moral hazard talk in the Wall Street Journal. It's all, yes, give them money. Make it make sense.
5: The, the irony of that is, is just glaring, I think, as you've, as you've laid out there. But yeah, I mean, this is This is something that I think is flummoxing so many people, Joy, as they look at this. And this argument about the bank being woke is just a preposterous one, as if a bank shouldn't have a diverse board of directors and shouldn't be lending money for companies that are working on environmental issues and and climate issues. And you know, the bank that I've been looking at in more specificity is is Signature Bank, this other bank that was closed down over the weekend. And this was a bank that throughout its history, a 20-year-long history, had an extremely close relationship with the Trump Organization, lent money to (laughs) Donald Trump. Ivanka Trump was a member of its board of directors when she was just 20 years old. Michael Cohen was a customer. Jared Kushner, Charles Kushner were companies as well. So it's it's an incredibly hollow argument that we've seen deployed here. And once again, sort of the fuzziness and squishiness of this term of wokeness is being applied here in just such an absurd way, Joanne.
1: Because it doesn't mean anything. Literally, it only means something to like black folk in the 1940s when be, they basically. started saying it, and you know, black people say it to each other. It just means black. Let's just be clear: when they say it, that's what they mean. I mean, anyway, it's always great to see you, David Guetta. Thank you. Great. you. Appreciate you very much. You. And coming up uh, with an indictment apparently right around the corner, Trump's attorney is dropping hints about a potential defense strategy. Or our legal expert will explain the Melania defense and why it might not work for the Donald. That's it.
6: not a contribution to his campaign. He made this with personal funds to prevent something coming out false but embarrassing to himself, his family's young son. That's not a campaign finance violation, not by any stretch.
1: With signs pointed to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg bringing charges against Donald Trump over the Stormy Daniels hush money payments, it appears that Trump and his lawyers are throwing a Hail Mary pass for their defense, or perhaps more specifically, a Hail Melania, claiming it's all It was all done to protect the sanctity of his third marriage. According to the Melania defense, the hush money payments Michael Cohen made on Trump's behalf had nothing to do with the fact that the 2016 presidential election was just days away. Or that Trump was limping into the final stretch following the release of the infamous Access Hollywood tape where he claimed he had the right to grab women by the, well, you know where. The problem with that strategy, that according to Stephanie winston walkoff Melania Trump's former advisor and friend, is that Melania knew about the affair and what Trump was up to around the time of his alleged affair with Daniels also fails to support his supposed concerns about his marital vows. The weekend of the summer of to- 2006, during a golf tournament in Tahoe, where Trump is alleged not only to have started his affair with Stephanie Cliffords, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels, he was continuing another affair with former Playboy model Karen McDougal. On top of that, another adult film actress, Jessica Drake, alleges that Trump grabbed and kissed her and two of her friends without their permission in his hotel room and then offered her $10,000 in exchange for her company, which she declined. All of this was supposedly going on while Melania, with whom he'd been married for less than two years, was back home with their infant son, Barron. And as GQ points out, Of the 13 best-documented allegations of unwanted physical contact that women have made against Trump, stretching back to the the 1980s, five of those alleged incidents, five of them, occurred during a two-year span from 2005 to 2006 that encompassed this weekend. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, MSNBC legal analyst and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. And Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor at Bloomberg Opinion and an MSNBC political analyst. I do want to start with you, Tim, because you you know this story very well. You have been a journalist reporting on Trump for far too long, perhaps, in your own <laughs> mind. Um, but, you know, it, it, it seems to me that trying to sort of put it on... He was worried Melania would find out, doesn't really wash, because it seems that just reading this GQ article today, rereading it, Donald Trump was going after everything moving and breathing uh, that was female uh, at this Lake Tahoe uh, golf tournament. He was trying to snatch up porn stars and Playboy Buddies every time he turned around, and he didn't really worry about Melania at all.
2: Well, here's the thing. Whatever motivated him, whether he was worried about the wrath of Melania or he was worried about blowing up his presidential campaign, they still falsified business records. So his motivation around that, to a certain extent, why he falsified the business records, I think is irrelevant if he did it. His motivation could come from anywhere. Um, I think clearly what they're trying to do is uncouple it from a campaign finance violation. So the severity of the charges get lessened. But, But here's the thing. I don't think he was just, even if he was, even if it was solely about Melania, and I do think he probably was worried about Melania, but I don't think he was worried about her finding out. I think he was worried possibly about her dissolving the marriage and coming at him with a divorce settlement. As always, he wasn't worried about emotions. He wasn't worried about any pledges he made to his wife, if that's what he was worried about. He was worried about the financial consequences (laughs) of it. And, And secondarily, as we have in the Georgia case, there is a tape. Michael Cohn, years ago, produced a tape that he claims to be a conversation I believe they were having with Karen McDougal, about the Karen McDougal cover up, a separate cover up of yet another affair in which he has Trump recorded saying, have Alan take care of it. Mm -hmm. I believe that's a reference to Alan Weisselberg as CFO. That tape um, demonstrates what I think is the core issue in all of these cases is that Donald Trump was an architect of malfeasance, he wasn't an innocent bystander. He was directing the people around him to do what he wanted them to do. Uh, in some cases, to break the law, and I think here it certainly appears that he he did.
1: Let me let me play that. This. this is, and I believe this is the tape that you're talking about. Ari Melber, uh, my colleague and friend, uh, interviewed Joe Tacapina, who was Trump's lawyer in this mess. Uh, and this is the tape, which I think this is the the question of Tacapina that I think includes that tape. Take a look.
2: This is a Trump Cohen recording um, where you have Trump in the room informed about the nature of some of these payments. Let's Trump. listen to this audio recording. I need to open up a company for
6: the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David. I spoke to Alan about it
5: when it comes time for the financing, which will be. Um, what financing? We'll have to
1: pay. you. So pay okay. No, 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 no.
2: When Donald Trump's talking to Mr. Cohen, as you say at the time, his lawyer and is engaged and is saying yes and pay with cash, that doesn't I mean, sound like
6: of cash. It means instead of financing the payment over months or
5: years.
2: Right. But that right. A check. OK. Yep. That doesn't sound like someone who has a lawyer who's gone rogue. It sounds like someone who is a using this lawyer to send the money to Daniels. And the problem potentially for your client in New York is whether this was misclassified, a.k.a. illegally written down as something it wasn't, as a payment for legal be, services. What would be
1: illegal about it? <laughs> Barbara, Barb, your thoughts? <laughs>
7: Well, what makes it illegal is if they are saying it's for one purpose when, in fact, it's for another purpose. That is the falsification of business records. And so it appears that the theory in this case is that they uh, made it look as if these payments to Michael Cohen were for the purpose of legal fees. In fact, they paid him out over a series of months to make it look like it was legal fees when, in fact, they were concealing this payment that was made to Stormy Daniels. Michael Cohen himself fronted the money, and then he was repaid by Trump in these monthly payments. Uh, as fees. And so that on its face, I think, is, is a crime. You know, it's, it's a, it's a defense attorney's trick, I think, to take one little piece of evidence, like a recording, and say, that doesn't prove anything. Uh, that's out of context. And what a prosecutor will do is piece together a lot of different elements. So this recording, along with witness testimony and documents to paint a picture about what was really going on here. And if they're prepared to indict him, then I think that means that Alvin Bragg's prosecutors believe that they can prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt.
1: And they have Michael Cohen and they might have Weisselberg. They're putting pressure mm-hmm. apparently on Weisselberg to cooperate too. And there is this other piece, Rolling Stone pointed this out, that you know Donald Trump the whole time has been saying he didn't have an affair with Stormy Daniels. So in order to make this defense, he has to say, well, okay, actually I, I gave her a lot of money to cover up something that I'm also alleging didn't happen. And I just will note that they were talking about Mr. David Pecker in that previous tape. So I think they were talking about McDougal and paying to buy her life rights to keep her quiet mm-hmm. too. There's so many women to keep track of, Tim, at this point you can't even barely keep track of it but the point is if he has a pattern of saying i'm going to buy your life rights for six figures so that you won't talk right and you're and then you don't tell the truth about why you took that money or wrote that check it doesn't matter if you thought you know milani would be mad right
2: well, I mean, and it's, you know, and it's a conspiracy. David Pecker was, you know, a, a, a newspaper publisher, the National Enqu- newspaper. well, I don't know what to call it, the National Enquirer. <laughs> and uh, yes, the tabloid. And, um, you know, the, Trump was using the National Enquirer to enhance his own reputation. He was using it to kill stories. Uh, they had arranged um, a publishing relationship with McDougal to keep her quiet. Um all of these individuals, I presume, have now been, have testified at, at, at length to Alvin Bragg's prosecutors. And Trump and his lawyers don't know what they've said. And, and, and I think that's one of the reasons Trump doesn't want to come in voluntarily to testify. And they're yeah. doing everything they can to keep this out of court.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, the, the plot thickens. Michael Cohen uh, did go. in. He's going in, I believe, tomorrow for yet another turn before this grand jury. So, you know, the plot continues to thicken. Barbara McQuaid, Tim O'Brien, thank you both very much. Up next. Thanks for... uh, thank you. A courtroom showdown is coming between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the twice elected state attorney that he fired for overtly partisan political reasons. Former Florida state attorney Andrew Warren joins me next. Stay with us. Last August, twice-elected Florida State Attorney Andrew Warren, who is a Democrat, signed a public pledge that he would not prosecute people who seek or provide abortions in Hillsborough County, where he served. For that, Warren was removed from office by Governor Ron DeSantis. Again, not for anything he did, but for expressing his thoughts and beliefs about the right to abortion in a state where abortion is currently criminalized at 15 weeks and soon to be at 6. Here's how DeSantis framed Warren's removal at the time.
2: When you flagrantly violate your oath of office when you make yourself above the law uh, you have violated your duty so today we are suspending state attorney andrew warren
1: effective immediately It's the, as it turns out, uh, Warren's ouster had nothing to do with, the, with public safety at all. It was completely politicized, as well as calculated and planned. The New York Times reports that DeSantis ordered his staff to find him some left-leaning prosecutors who, quote, weren't enforcing the law. It was, perhaps coincidentally, a major right-wing meme at the time, with conservatives accusing George Soros because it always comes back to George Soros, of putting up progressive prosecutors who would do awful things like proposing alternatives to incarceration for nonviolent crime or avoiding the death penalty. The agents of Soros stuff also happens to be a common anti-Semitic theme, also perhaps coincidentally. Well, unfortunately for DeSantis, Andrew Warren sued. And the discovery in that lawsuit, it has revealed some very interesting things. The New York Times reports that according to their own testimony in that lawsuit, DeSantis and his advisors admitted that they failed to find any connection between Warren's policies and public safety, though those details don't seem to matter in Florida. They also worked with friendly media outlets like Fox to ensure that the takeover of the Hillsborough State Attorney's Office received positive coverage. And it worked because the same day that Warren was removed, Tucker, who we now know knowingly lies to his audience, praised DeSantis as a hero.
3: Today,
5: Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, a man who, unlike George Soros, has actually been elected by American voters, decided to sack a Soros-backed prosecutor in his state who's been relentlessly politicizing the justice system in Tampa. That man's name is Andrew Warren. For six years, Warren has refused to enforce laws that George Soros doesn't like. Ron DeSantis is the man who put an end to it today in the state of Florida.
1: Joining me now is Andrew Warren, the former Hillsborough County state attorney who is suing DeSantis for reinstatement. Mr. Warren, thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to start on that last point, because it does seem that your ouster was a preordained, at least per The New York Times reporting, they were looking for someone to fire so that they could publicly make hay of it, even though DeSantis got upset with Christina Pushaw, his then spokesperson, for admitting that on Twitter. Um, Is that how you understand what happened to you?
6: It's exactly how I understand it, Joy. I mean, from the beginning, we've said that this was a political stunt. And what came out during trial and what the New York Times was able to expose by doing their deep dive was that this was never about the job that I did. They, if they were looking for evidence that I'd done something wrong, they had nothing. But nothing was enough for them. I mean, that's how it's working in the state of Florida. This was never about public safety. This was always about publicity. It was always a political stunt. It was always intended just to fire up their base. And now that the facts have come out, now that a court of law has said that the suspension was illegal, it's a it's a totally different ballgame, right? Because now it's a question. The governor stood up, the clip you showed and said, you know, we, Mr. Warren needs to follow the law. Well, now the governor DeSantis has been the one to be found in violation of both federal and state law. But yet he's refusing to do anything about it.
1: And the the, the judge in the case was pretty scathing in saying just what you just said, that this was clearly a political firing. I mean, the New York Times reports that they didn't even call your former then former office after having you physically removed by law enforcement to ask if there was any evidence that you'd done anything wrong until after you were gone. So the judge was on your side, but the judge said that they didn't have the power to reinstate you. So what is the status of your appeal right now?
6: Well, the status of the case is that we are appealing that very narrow issue about whether the judge had jurisdiction. But make no mistake, what the judge found was crystal clear. After a trial on the merits, the judge found that I had done nothing wrong, that the allegations against me were totally false, and that the governor violated the U.S. Constitution and the Florida Constitution by suspending me for political reasons. So we are appealing that issue whether the, whether a federal court has jurisdiction to reinstate me. We've also gone to the state court in Florida because clearly they have jurisdiction to order the governor to follow the law that he swore to uphold that clearly he has no intention of doing.
1: Uh, let me read you this. This is Christina Pushaw. This is the tweet that she posted that apparently she got reprimanded for. Prepare for the liberal media meltdown of the year. Major announcement tomorrow from uh, Rhonda Sanders. And apparently that was the one time that she ever got reprimanded uh, from her and that they wanted the decision to look like it had nothing to do with the media. It, 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 I, I assume you're, you, would, you would call her if, if, this, if this goes to, try, to federal trial, right, as a witness?
6: Uh, She was deposed in in the trial before. She didn't end up testifying as a witness, but her boss did, the communications director. But, Joy, you hit the nail on its head, right? They wanted it to look like it wasn't politically motivated. They wanted it to look like there was a basis for suspending me. They wanted to make it look like this was about the job that I'd done. They even had Tucker Carlson talking about, you know, for six years, he hasn't enforced the law. As the judge said, they couldn't identify a single example, not one of where I didn't follow the law. And by contrast, the judge found examples of where the governor broke the law. What's he doing about it? Nothing. The governor went, well, I can get away with this. So he's gonna try to get away with it, but we're not gonna let him. That's why we're fighting back. This is much more important than just my job. It's about free speech and our democracy. And of course the rule of law.
1: What do you make of the fact that this apparently came from the governor asking his uh, subordinates a question about, you know, are there any progressive judges that are not following the law, and that that came from a right-wing meme about George Soros, who has been subjected to horrific anti-Semitic attacks. But it seemed that that is where he got this idea.
6: Yeah, it it just shows that he's doing this for publicity because George Soros is, you know, the boogeyman for everything. Uh, DeSantis the other day was talking about, you know, the Silicon Valley Bank and how it collapsed, and he's blaming it on DEI, not on all the macroeconomic factors that the experts look at. I was shocked he didn't blame it on George Soros. Maybe he's about to next week. I mean, they blame it on it. Soros is the cause of everything, right? No connection with my office. Obviously, no evidence that I'd done anything wrong. But that's the talking point that fuels these crazy conspiracy theories on right-wing media that we have to call out for what they are completely, completely
1: false. And lastly, the, the idea that you were punished for speech, to me, that sounds like a big First Amendment problem. Are you concerned that that's what Florida is now, that if you speak and he doesn't like what you say, he will punish you using his power?
6: That's exactly what the governor is showing. he's willing to do. He's gone after Disney. He's gone after teachers. He's gone after LGBTQ community, He's gone after prosecutors. The state of Florida is only free if you agree with what the governor agrees with. That's not freedom. That's not democracy. That's not America.
1: Uh, Andrew Warren, thank you. We will keep an eye on your case. Much appreciated, and best of luck to you. Okay, coming up, my thoughts on the passing of former Colorado Congresswoman Pat Schroeder, a fearless pioneer in the ongoing fight for women's rights. We'll be right back. Pat Schroeder, a pioneer for women's rights and the first woman from Colorado to be elected to Congress, has died at the age of 82. The feminist force helped pass the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, as well as the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993, which guarantees people up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave to care for a family member. She also faced silly controversies, like how she may or may not have been worn a bunny suit for, for for an embassy for embassy kids on an Easter trip to China. Schroeder remained unbothered.
2: I do have a wonderful bunny suit. <laughs> and I'll wear it for children. Are you kidding? As president. Oh sure, I mean for crying out loud. If the worst thing the president of the United States ever did was put on a bunny rabbit suit at Easter for children, we'd be a lot better if I'm worried about the guys who put on the three piece suits and traded
1: missiles to Iran. Say all of that. There were only 14 women in the House when Schroeder arrived in Washington. The Washington Post noting that several of those members were widows, filling out the terms of their deceased husbands. Schroeder described the institution as an overaged frat house. Her wit didn't end there. When facing questions about how one could function as both a mother and a lawyer and a lawmaker, she said, I have a brain and a uterus and I use both. The Congresswoman is widely known for her 1987 announcement that she would not run for president. Such hopes for women candidates, as we well know, persist today, as do hopes for bodily autonomy. Here she is speaking on the Capitol steps in Washington in 1977 at a rally against a ban on the use of federal funds for abortion. Schroeder helped to blaze that trail, and we are still fighting the same battles. So it is during this Women's History Month and in the days beyond that we honor Pat Schroeder for her enduring legacy. And that is tonight's readout.
2: Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why
1: it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.